Hi, I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from the lands of the Wurrati people of the Muanina Nation. I'm Mari Forth. And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. Subscribe to our feed at robhasawebsite.com slash crime feed to get your true crime on Tuesdays. We also drop on the maiden feed on Wednesdays. Sarah, what are we talking about today? Well, let's open today's file. We watched Leave No Trace on Hulu. Uh, It's a feature documentary produced and directed by Irene Taylor. Uh, She directed Beware the Slender Man, uh, which is fantastic. Go and see that. That's something Murray and I both uh, recommend. Uh, She's in post-production currently for Blue-Eyed Devil, which is a documentary which follows three men after they're released from prison. And she's just signed on to direct a Celine Dion biopic. But we can't discuss Leave No Trace without our guest, pop culture enthusiast and storyteller. He's the host of Leaving the Theatre, and he's here for the first, but not last time, if he plays his cards right. It's Ronald Young Jr. Ronald, welcome to Crime Scene. Hello, sir. I hope this isn't the last time, and if it is, I promise I will leave no trace. Ooh. Ooh. (laughs) He said the thing. He said the thing. Thank y'all so much for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, you're very welcome. We do ask all our guests for their true crime origin story. How did you get into true crime? Are you into true crime? We have some who don't watch true crime at all. Uh, What do you like? What does it do for you? Uh, I would say that I'm like, I I am about as into true crime as, as much as the average listener could be you know i'm not necessarily Mm. a huge fan but i like everyone else will turn my head for the really popular stuff for all Mm. the stuff that everyone's talking about the water cooler i'm definitely watching all of that i remember you know most recently i was at the the tip of the spear for for the new true crime wave meaning that i was a huge fan of cereal uh when it came (laughs) out back in 2014 but before that you know i was listening to this american life like everyone Uh else and all of course the popular crime episodes that came out loved that loved criminal another uh little true crime podcast mm-hmm. that's been around for quite some mm-hmm. times but i would say my origin story probably starts with the original law and order which my mom used to watch on <laughs> every day on usa i used to love that show and then of course when svu came out sometime in the late 90s early aughts i was into that as well and i think that kind of like kept me kept me watching stuff all the time like oh what's going on like what i love this whole crime atmosphere so then anytime something came out like you know it naturally lended itself to me watching listening to it on podcasts but i'm always interested to find out like you know what's the real story behind this murder do we got a new documentary like what's going on Mm -hmm. like somebody unravel the 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 threads for me so i can really lock in so yeah I'm, i'm big into it so so what's your favorite subgenre if I can ask like are you into cold cases serial killers um who done it so what wh- I don't mean to put you on the spot but what yeah. what is like one of the stories that really have has drawn you to to get more information about it You know uh, I I like a who done it it's weird I'm going to describe a, a subcategory that's like that I don't even know if it's, it's a subcategory but I Please. remember uh, I'll give another shout out to criminal one of the first episodes that I just accidentally listened to, you know, your podcast player sometimes just will pick up something and start playing for it after you finish something else. You didn't even ask and it just starts playing something else. Mm-hmm. And it starts playing this episode of Criminal called The Boy Who, uh, Robbie Tolan, The Man Who Lived. And it starts telling a story about uh, 
police shooting that happened to this guy named Robbie Tolan, who he's a black man that was shot down by the police, but he lived. And it talked mm. about the basically everything that happens in a police shooting when a person uh, when a person then survives through it instead of dying, you know, because normally we're just going to be becoming a hashtag and us having a discussion. But at this, the, it kind of goes in a completely different direction. So I like stories that are uh, that are unexpected. And I always like a story that exposes corruption, you know, like anything Ooh. where it's like somebody <laughs> was cheating or somebody like turned out to be somebody they weren't. They were misrepresenting themselves, mm-hmm. anything like that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a murder, but anything that mm-hmm. like uncovers the belly of the beast. I'm, 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 I'm here for it. I'll eat that up like popcorn. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Very apt for today as well. I feel Very like. apt for right? today. <laughs> yes. We get to the crime today in this documentary and our discussion. Uh, we will talk about child sexual abuse. If that's not for you, you can hop off. We'll see you next time. Either way, we'd like to give you some resources, uh, which we'll link in the show notes. In Australia, you can contact SAMSN, S-A-M-S-N. It's the Survivors and Mates Support Network which is a peer-to-peer support for male survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Uh, you can contact them at samson.org.au, that's S-A-M-S-N. And there's also the National Redress Scheme, 1-800-737-377 or nationalredress.gov.au. That's for information, support, and to make an application. If you have experienced institutional child sexual abuse in Australia, you can apply until the end of June 2027. And in the U.S., you can find support at, um, by calling the 24-7 Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline. That's 1-800-4-A-CHILD or 1-800-422-4453. Or you can go to www.childhelp.org for uh, more resources on child abuse prevention and treatment. Thanks, Mari. And now to the crime. And it's a big one. Buckle in, everybody. The Boy Scouts of America was founded in 1910 to, and I quote, prepare young people to make ethical and moral choices over their lifetimes by instilling in them the values of the Scout Oath and Law. Since prior to their 25th anniversary in 1935, Boy Scouts of America have been maintaining files of ineligible volunteers, as they called them. These were men who were known to be pedophiles. In 2010, a jury ordered the Scouts to pay $18.5 million to a Scout who was abused in the 1980s. In February 2020, the Boy Scouts of America filed for bankruptcy due to around 200 sexual abuse claims which were pending since that first case. The U.S. Bankruptcy Court set a date in November 2020 for sexual abuse claims against the BSA to be made, and by the deadline, there were 82,000 claims. In February this year, the survivors voted to accept a settlement from the BSA. They would receive payments based on the level of abuse they suffered. This $2.7 billion, billion with a B, payout is the largest sexual abuse settlement in U.S. history. Yes, bigger than the Catholic Church. One of every eight claimants reported their abuse occurred after 1990, which was the year the Boy Scouts of America implemented its youth protection protocols. Right, let's get into it. Um, Ronald, what was your experience with the Boy Scouts of America? 
Well, it was not the experience that is outlined in the description of this film. So we can uh, we can start there. But mm-hmm. I will say that my uh, so I was a Cub Scout and I was a Cub Scout when I was in Hawaii, meaning that uh, I'm, and sorry, in Hawaii, my parents were military. So we lived in Oahu at the time. And I remember it was uh, me and my sister that lived in one house. And the next house over was the Campos uh, and the mom and dad of the Campo household were very close with the troop leaders. So they used to host a lot of Boy Scout meetings at their house. So I would literally walk out of my backyard into their backyard and be at a Boy Scout meeting uh, in, in that way. My dad was heavily involved. We went camping together. I started off as a wolf and then I became, by the time I left, I became a bear and mm-hmm. I quit right before I would have been called, become what's called a weeblo, uh, which is kind of like the fleur de lis. That was the mm-hmm. symbol of the Weeblos. Um, so I had a great time. I did uh, I did a box card. But, you know, what is it called? Derby racing? No. Yeah, the Pinewood, pine car. Pinewood mm-hmm. Derby racing. Yeah. yeah Pinewood Derby. And I remember I, that was the first time that I realized that I was a very competitive child because I lost and I burst into tears. Uh, I lost excellent. the first race and I burst into tears. My dad was like, I don't what, what's I don't what what is happening? <laughs> it's just a car. <laughs> You're literally just sliding down a, a, a ramp. So but I remember that. So it was a great experience. Uh, it was a great experience for me. And I, I remember at the time even considering I wish I would have continued with the Boy Scouts. But as I got older and as was confirmed with this documentary, a lot of propaganda in becoming a Boy Scout. And I feel like mm-hmm. that was one thing that stood out to me about the movie. There was a lot of propaganda going on here. And I'm kind of glad that I uh, that I quit when I did. But to find out all of this about it felt like I was thankful for, you know, my parents kind of being in there with me and kind of mm-hmm. never letting me go off and be by myself or and my parents are naturally suspicious. Remember, <laughs> that so They were like, if they saw an adult that even like wasn't combing their hair enough, they would show up to be like, I don't think I want you by yourself. So I had a good experience as a Cub Scout, but this this was this documentary was fairly eye opening for me. Ronald, uh, can you explain us? Because the the documentary, I think the documentary does a good job of drilling down on what the actual like what we're here for. So Mm -hmm. we don't really get the um, structure or or like the levels of the of of the Boy Scouts. I was a Mm -hmm. Girl Scout. So I do know like the daisies, the brownies and stuff like that. Can you just give us just a brief levels? Because I'm very interested in, in, in what you were just saying there with the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's fairly simple. It's fairly straightforward, and I might mess it up a little, so be ready for both. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. So I was in elementary school. In elementary school, you were a Cub Scout, and I think you got to about age twelve or thirteen before you officially became a Boy Scout, uh, which mm. was you know when and and I don't even remember what those levels were because I didn't stay in there long enough. Right. But each set of children and teenagers belonged to what were called troops, and mm-hmm. each of those troops had a leader. And so the troops were a little smaller. So if you were in like Troop fourteen, uh, you were you were uh, a part of. And actually, I might have this in reverse, but I'll, I'll explain it in a second. So there were troops and there were dens. And I believe the dens mm. were smaller than the troops. So if you were in den, you had like a little bit of family, maybe one, two, three, four families in a den. And then you had a troop and a bunch of dens belonged to a troop. And so you stayed in it. Uh, you know, you went from wolf to bear to weeblo to, you know, Captain America, so on and so forth, up through the ranks as a, as a, a Boy Scout. And then uh, the adults were 
plugged in either as troop leaders, assistant troop leaders, parent volunteers, or den leaders, assistant den leaders, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how everyone came together. And that's also how you'd be interacting with different adults all the time. So, and then sometimes Mm. if you went to summer camp and all that, you had camp counselors, you had different folks that were stationed there as well. But assuming that you went to camp, sometimes your troop leader and your den leader didn't go to camp with you. You'd be dealing with a whole new set of adults because you were just kind of sent off the camp in that case. And if y'all hear what I'm describing, I mean, mm-hmm. like, this wasn't necessarily paid positions. So it's very easy to exploit uh, what I'm describing here. Cause there's like, it's like a network. It's like a honeycomb of holes mm-hmm. of a honeycomb of loopholes in order for people to kind of exploit uh, kind of the network that they have here. Cause a lot of it is, uh, is volunteer based. The Girl Scouts were much like that. Exactly that. The first troops versus dens. I was in it for, I want to say I, same thing as you. Like, I, I think I got right to cadet, like right before I was going to go, like move up to be like an actual Girl Scout. I did daisies mm-hmm. and brownies, but then I actually moved to Hawaii. And mm. um, and when I moved to Hawaii, I did. I went to one troop meeting, like one or two troop meetings, and it was nothing like my my Girl Scout nope. experience in D.C. Yep. Yep. And I was like. Oh, we're, we're, we live in this beautiful state and we're sitting here making beads. I was like, we're, this is, and this is when I, I came from, like, I was, when I was in DC, I mean, we had, we had the monthly uh, uh, troop meetings. I went camping. I went to several Girl Scout camps, Girl Scout national conventions, always came to DC. Like, yep. I, re- I remember so vividly, like, the different smells of my cabins, like, yeah. going out camping, all the really good memories. And, when you move and stuff like that and you you kind of have to trade your troop in it's it's really hard to maintain when yeah. you're when you're going up in the levels and you're just around different different people so that 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 makes sense to me and it's very interesting that we have a, a very shared background here yeah I well do, it's funny because yeah. my story is your story in reverse so i'm in hawaii <laughs> and we come to dc and I basically that's <laughs> that was it for me, because especially we came back and it was it was just different. We came back and, mm-hmm. and me and my family, it was funny because I wasn't really that even that interested in finding uh, the the Cub Scout troop. But once I found them, I was just like, no, thanks. And my parents, I didn't express any interest to them and they certainly weren't going to pursue it. So and I and I didn't wow. miss it when I ended it. So it was perfectly fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, I mean, this is a very familiar sort of militaristic model and mm-hmm. not surprising because it, that's, part, that's part of its purpose. 1910, uh, we need to get young men at the time, uh, let's get them habituated to this to this system or model yeah. uh, as Marcy Hamilton, the CEO of Child USA, calls it very eloquently. There's a problem with the model. Yeah. And one of the problems, as you pointed out, Ronald, is that the it's it's both a big family, but it's also compartmentalized. And she says you have them going off without the supervision of their parents. And we do meet some parents who who's tr- who trusted uh, what they were told. One of them said we were told the rules by a pedophile. Let's talk about our first young man that we meet. And obviously we like to talk about how a documentary is made uh, as much as the content. It's very hard not to talk about the content of this uh-huh. of this um, documentary. So the first thing that we do is we meet Chris Yoxall. Uh, Chris was in Scouts for two years. He's now 18 years old. He's angry. He's punching the walls. 
and we don't ever see him sitting in the traditional talking head, static chair, straight to the camera. The camera mm-hmm. kind of just wanders around his bedroom with him, wanders into the kitchen and makes eggs, wanders over to sit next to his parents. When I say wanders, it's a very agitated wander. Murray, what did you think about just jumping straight in and listening to Chris and his selection as the first person that we hear? This was just so powerful, right? Because what this documentary truly is, it's just the stories of of a, a, a few of the victims. Like a lot of the talking heads are the victims. And I think the the storytelling of this documentary, like the subject being so just sad and heartbreaking, but the way that they strung it together and Chris being the first person we meet is a gut punch truly because he was a scout in 2015 and 2017, right? And this, he he opens up that he was abused. And then they make the concentrated effort to go back. And so, and then we meet much older victims. And so, and then we keep coming back to Chris and his family, just how we keep coming back and, and with the other victims. But Chris being the opener is really the, it, it's like, a, it's very poetic because we know as the documentary unfolds, they did not, they didn't do anything. You know what I'm saying? They didn't properly curb the problem because we had this young man. The first young man we meet is the most modern victim that we have. And he wouldn't be sitting here if they had uh, addressed the problem when it first started. So I I thought this was um, very well done by the documentary. Chris as a subject is just heartbreaking, but also like, I, I I wanted to hug him and I wanted to rally around him. And I'm so thankful that he told his story and the way he told his story and, you know, being a uh, front and center here, because I think it, it really did need to be told. And so I, I love the beginning of this, of this um, uh, project. And it's going to be really hard, like Sarah said, to talk about the content of the documentary while also talking about how it's made, because it's just so heartbreaking. It truly, truly is. Um, Ron, what did you think? Uh, I, I mean, I think uh, like uh, going to content versus construction for me, the content is what, what, what kept me in it. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? In, 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 a, in a documentary like this, you know, you have this one, you have athlete a about USA gymnastics. Yes. And I think there's mm-hmm. another one about, um, and, and athlete, I mean, in USA gymnastics has had multiple, uh, coverages and, and so did the ones about the Catholic church and starting with this young man in the way that they did immediately kind of snaps you right to attention, you know, cause mm-hmm. you, when they're, they're saying they're going to talk about the boy Scouts, you know, in our minds, we all have this kind of, uh, this, this construction of what a boy Scout is and what this is going to be about. And they kind of just split that apart by showing us this young man. He is like, you know, he's a skinny child. He's very young. He's in a room. He's not necessarily like, he doesn't look necessarily outdoorsy. He doesn't look Mm -hmm. like somebody I expect to be. And I'm not saying he's not because, you know, Mm -hmm. later on they show him skateboarding and all that, but they, you know, he doesn't necessarily look like a guy who's, you know, hugging the American flag and being all about rah, rah, boy scouts. He just seems like a regular kid, which kind of reminds you in that moment. Oh, anybody can be a boy scout which Mm -hmm. then takes you to the next one. Any of these kids could have been abused, which Mm -hmm. I think for me was not only mega powerful, the longer we stay with them and the more we interact with him, 
his brother and his parents, mm-hmm. the more, you know, affecting the story becomes, especially when he gets to the point where, Sarah, you mentioned there was no real talking head for him, but he's sitting in his parents' house, 18 years old, in the recliner, you know what I mean? And he just starts not looking at the camera, just looking straight ahead, telling the story. And you could see his father, his father, like being visibly affected by this. And his mm-hmm. mother even says, you know, I've never, uh, he's never said that to us. He never told us exactly what happened. And it, it kind of feels like us as the, as the viewer, it just, I'm like, wow, we, just, we were just witness to this very private moment of, of him basically telling his story, what happened. And it's, it just made it, it really grounds all of this for me. And it really, in my opinion, solidifies every single Boy Scout official I see later in this film as a villain. Every single one. I don't care. Yes. I don't care if you were if you were standing around, if you were there, if you're like, well, I think the scouts need nope. Villain. Every single one of them. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, did y'all did y'all just watch this kid? And y'all didn't you you didn't do anything about it? Like there, like there should be no Boy Scouts right now after hearing what that mm-hmm. what that young man said. They should just call it scouts. It should be run by the women and it should be called, they should just be <laughs> selling cookies and climbing trees, and there should be no men involved whatsoever. You know what I mean? Like there was just I had like just a long way. Yeah. So Sarah, powerful way to start. I'm sorry. I can I could go on a tangent if you let me. <laughs> oh, I mean it's a bit weird here. Tangents. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> and one of them is no three-part documentaries, and the other one is we are here for tangents. I think <laughs> yes, the other uh, survivors that we meet are older men, and even when it's someone like Stuart Lord who we're going to meet, we first meet him working out, and he talk. He speaks as if it's a light thing, but he says, "I wanted to develop my body so that no one." else can have ownership over it and it's a double layer because he's a black man as well he tells us he speaks to us there's a tear that comes down his face as we see many crying men but without chris it's historical mm-hmm. what a shame yes. that happened to you 50 years yes. ago yes but great that you've come through and you didn't decide to leave this life and you've somehow made your life important and and worthy without chris i think we don't we just don't get that gut punch as you say ron yeah which is you know it's funny you say that because i was also gut punched by that guy because <laughs> you you're right you start when you when you say that and you make it modern and i'm like and and i because mari when you just said between 2015 to 2017, you know, we've been in a black hole the last three years. So basically everything from 2019 and 2022 was all 2020 in our minds. So (laughs) would you say 2015 to 2017? I'm like, that really wasn't really that long ago. That was, Mm -hmm. that was, you know, a couple years, like what, five, six years. It wasn't that long ago. We all, the three of us remember exactly what we were doing 2015, Mm -hmm. 2017. Arguably, we might not have had any enormous life changes between that time, meaning that we could be very well similar to the person we were in 2015. Had they said 2005, we'd be like, oh, we were doing different things back then. It was a different time, whatever. If they said 1995, same thing. We'd be talking a different story right now. But you're right for it to be that soon and to see this young man's face and for him to be 18 years old is really affecting. But then you compound that by the fact that I am seeing this man doing essentially CrossFit. He starts off and he's like, I'm trying to get my body in shape because I want to have bodily autonomy, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, as a black man watching him, I'm like, oh, my God. And That's as nice. they unfold his story again, it, 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 it leads me right in the same place. Like, how are there still Boy Scouts? After this? Yeah. Like, how, how are y'all still sending kids off to this? You know, 
Yes, his story develops again uh, how they how they unfold the story is kind of really well told here because we ba- we bounce back and forth between historical archives of the boy scouts to victim impact stories but only a little bit of their story and then mm-hmm. their then their story comes out more and more and more and for stewart um for his story to develop that he was basically a part of like a child sex ring yes that was run by one of the exec of the boy scouts like that being one of the last pieces near the end of the documentary is just mind-blowing after it and that's it's still mind-blowing after we've already sat through like maybe what an hour or so of, of testimony of so many other men um being abused and victimized it is it it truly it was so effective it was so effective and affecting and we go back as far as like ron kerman he was a scout in 1958. Like, I just, it, it just really makes you so upset because they really, this has been the, uh, over the hundred years of scouting. It, it basically started as soon as the scouts started, which is so abhorrent. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that because uh, they kept files because that's part of the military is to keep files, but you just don't. Tell anybody. Mm-hmm. Ron, you said propaganda. I do want to shift them for a moment. Obviously, we will keep the survivors in our minds and we will, we, we cannot but talk about them uh, mm-hmm. again. But I would like to look at the propaganda of the Scouts and how this was presented in the documentary. We have a lot of presidents, including JFK, who'd been a Scout himself, uh, and we have uh, John Glenn course as a child of the space race i watched neil armstrong step on the moon in in real time live uh and i remember it so when i saw john glenn i was like oh hello john and they used neil armstrong himself uh, as well this propaganda and we'll talk about norman rockwell too how did it strike you both in its use by the boy scouts of america and its presentation in the documentary well, I mean, I, I'm not a person who's uh, like, I, I believe my dad was in the military. My mom is in the military. So I'm a, a household of two veteran parents. Both my sister and I went to ROTC in college. We had ROTC scholarships. We both like had full intentions of joining the military. This could have been a two generational military family. Um, me and my sister both ended and my dad will tell. And he said this one time in front of us and I realized uh, that my dad is hip, but he says, yeah, once my kids found out that I didn't care if they joined the military or not, they quit ROTC. And he is 100% correct because we were like, oh, we're trying to make our dad proud. He's like, I don't care if you're in the military. And then later on, talking with my dad about his experiences with the military, it's very much informed by, for him, it was very much a functional a functional decision. It was a logistical decision. Like, this is a job. This is like, you know, three hots in a cot, as they say, like it was, <laughs> this is why I'm doing this. There's other people that join for other reasons. And those other reasons are all fostered in the Boy Scouts, which is they tell you about community. They tell you about American flag and honesty and all that, which as looking at now, I'm 38 and watching this documentary kind of lay all these things out. Now it felt a lot more obvious and a lot more disgusting. Um, And Mm. I'm, and I hope I don't alienate anyone by saying this, but to spoon feed values like this to people, not for value's sake, not to make better humans or any of that, 
but with the purpose of because there is a clear Boy Scout to military pipeline. You know what uh-huh. I mean? It's very easy to imagine someone going, playing outdoors, learning how to set up tents, learning how to survive and all that. And then you put a gun in their hand, you teach them how to shoot and you can march them off into Iraq. It's not hard to do that when you've uh-huh. already kind of given them all the tools uh, to do it in the Boy Scouts. But the one thing that blew my mind is that they said they started this in 1910 because as uh, places were becoming more industrialized, they said that uh, the boys weren't in touch with the outdoors enough. And mm-hmm. I said, man, if they saw boys now, where we <laughs> the Wi-Fi, <laughs> we have internet, we're playing video games. Like we, I mean, I haven't seen the outside in six weeks. You know, what I mean? like we're talking about that. Like I couldn't imagine what they would think now because in 1910 you ain't had nothing to do but play outside. We barely <laughs> had television, if I'm not mistaken. You know, so I couldn't imagine when it was somebody looking at the boys back then and being like, "Well, these boys are soft." <laughs> like looking at a, at a basically at a young boomer or young greatest generation and telling them these boys are soft and starting this but like you know all of it is built around the American flag and the respect for each other and you look at the Norman Rockwell stuff which Mm -hmm. I I don't know about y'all but blew my mind as they're Mm -hmm. painting propaganda Norman Rockwell who's trying to be an artist and being like well I actually want to show more of these things and they're like nah just put a family and a Native American and put a A flag and an an astronaut (laughs) put it on there white picket fence that's what we want these are American values Values. So, I mean, Make I, sure I, they're again, wearing shoes, their shoes are tied, their uniforms yes. are ironed. Yeah. Yes, like that's like the, this is all like like spoon-fed propaganda. And I think it was harder to watch now because you know, if I hadn't seen this, I might have I might have still had kids and I'm like, yeah, yeah, put them in Boy Scouts, let's have fun out there. They'll go camping, run around, all this. I see this now. I'm very much like, nah, my kids are gonna be playing basketball. that's it and i'm gonna be on the team with them right (laughs) assistant coach right there yeah that that parade of presidents mari i was also you know being a trivia buff i was going oh and naming them Mm -hmm. that tying of the president scout thing how did that strike you Um, including the, the previous guy (laughs) <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was very integral to the whole point of like showing the staying power of the scouts like it it was kind of again it was, it was setting the scene for us because it came right after we met Chris and it just showed you from oh I was like oh Theodore Roosevelt started this oh he's had some he started some good programs that's that sounds cool, you know, and then it just progressed through time. And it just, I, I felt that it showed, it was like, this is the staying power. This is what we're kind of fighting here. You know, the longevity saying that a, an organization has been around for a hundred years is like very, like it, it shows you the breadth of the situation. And then going back and throughout the um, documentary showing not only has it been around for a hundred years, but I mean, for about at least 80 of them, <laughs> there's been rampant sexual abuse. Like it it really per, uh, perfectly set the tone for what we're about to get into, I, I thought. You know, Mari, I was going to say, though, if, if if you think about organizations and how they how they work, if if you say at least 80, then you might as well say it was for the whole 105. Right. True. Because mm-hmm. if we talk about when it's reported, you're never going to get like the origin story of when the first person saw an organization of children mm-hmm. and decided to victimize them. You know, mm-hmm. you're never going to, you're never going to understand that. So the assumption is if they did it as late as 2015 to 2017, I mean, my assumption is if as long as there are adults 
And as long as there are children available to be exploited, they will exploit those children. I think the same thing happens with if there are women and men can exploit them, they mm-hmm. will exploit them. If there are white people and there are people of color <laughs> to be exploited, they will be exploited. Like that's yes. that's exactly if there's an opportunity to exploit, it will be there. So, yeah. So when you say 105 years, I mean, for me, I'm just like, I assume that every single one of these years they were victimizing the children. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think one thing that the documentary does really well is it, it give us visual markers of certain things. For example, we meet the intake officer at the crew attorneys mm. who are representing a lot of these survivors, and she talks about imagining there would be four folders of claimants. And mm-hmm. then she says, well, I'll show you this year. That's eight just for this year. She thought it would mm. be four in total. Yeah. Yeah, And then when 10 years of these ineligible volunteer uh, records are ordered to be, I'm sorry, 20 years, 20. Mm-hmm. are ordered to be turned over after the 2010 uh, Lewis versus Boy Scouts of America uh, settlement that we spoke of, we see the boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of files, and that's just 20 of these 100 and whatever it's been, 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I think that that Irene Taylor is a fantastic um, storyteller. We also have the producer who who we see on camera. He's a journalist mm-hmm. and it's um, uh, Nigel Jacquis mm-hmm. who's, who's very interesting. A lot of very soft-spoken men. It's quite <laughs> the most shouty men are the BSA apologists. Mm-hmm. A lot of soft-spoken men with, with we hear but we see Chris's walls being punched and the oldest of our survivors that we meet, Ron Kerman, again, another softly spoken man who talks about how his uncontrollable bursts of anger have cost him many jobs. And his wife talks about ringing the Boy Scouts of America, begging for help. And they said, there's nothing we can do for you. So that affected me greatly. So let's move on to the events of 2020 with these approximately 200 claims against the Boy Scouts of America pending. The organisation headed by the chair, Jim Turley, uh, who says, yes, he was very involved in the decision to declare bankruptcy. He's definitely an apologist for the BSA. And by the way, in my side Googling, he was opposed to the lifting of the ban on gay members. Uh, which oh, don't get me started, Sarah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we will. We will, start, we will, we will get you see that. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> um, let's let's have the broccoli first, unless you like broccoli, in which case insert <laughs> another uh, unloved <laughs> vegetable. This bankruptcy, I, I didn't. I, this is not a ding on the documentary. I didn't necessarily want to go into you know a line by line spreadsheet. But it's my understanding that when a business declares bankruptcy, that's the end of the business. This is an organisation with huge assets, land and various other things, dues that have been paid by the members uh, and their parents. They have insurance that Uh is just mind-boggling amounts and they're paying their executives nearly a million a year, if I remember Uh rightly. The idea is they're going to declare bankruptcy but somehow still continue to operate they present it as oh this is a way we can look after the survivors is that the case Ron? uh well i mean typically when place when a place ever 
like bankruptcy is supposed to be like is not necessarily a get out of jail free card, but it is a way in which a lot of businesses have rebounded because mm-hmm. now they basically wipe their debts, uh, their old debts off the book. Now it makes it hard. It drops your credit and it makes it impossible to get new money in there at all. But it is a means of survival to moving on. When Penn State, the the the, mm-hmm. the, the State had their scandal, and the NCAA came down with their punishment. I remember thinking uh, like they were just, it was like this punishment was like maybe a couple years, this, that you're suspended, whatever. And they mm-hmm. should have gotten what was, what was called at the time, the death penalty, meaning that you were not yes. allowed to play football for 10 years. Like that's mm-hmm. it. They're, your football program's done for 10 years. And I think that if there's, if you're not using a death penalty in this case, where the reason why these boys were abused at Penn state was because of the football program. Therefore, the fo- as for me, it would have been it would have taken ten seconds to do to deliver this. Therefore, mm-hmm. you don't have football for ten years and think about what y'all did. And also, not only that, here's other things that you're going to be doing for these next ten years. For yeah. me, with the Boy Scouts, I feel like it should have been something similar. Would have been like, okay, mm-hmm. so there's no Boy Scouts anymore. That's over. Mm-hmm. Um, there and, <laughs> and and yes, you declared bankruptcy. And all of the things that we're going to deal with now next are going to be pay, payment to victim, therapy mm-hmm. for victims, punitive damage. I mean, punitive uh, uh, punishments for mm-hmm. all of the perpetrators. We're going to use these files that y'all don't want to give us. We're going to use that and we're going to uh, put them all in the registry. Like mm-hmm. everybody's in the registry will have to evaluate. <laughs> everyone's going there because you had all the elements to do it so mm-hmm. sir i don't think they i don't really think they accomplished that with with what they tried to do you know we look at the number and say that's a huge number but a lot of those men will tell you like yes i'm going to take the money yes give me the money i'm going to take it like if it was me yes i'm going to take the money but if you think that the money is going to do what actually needs to be done what the money does is shut it really does it just shuts my mouth it doesn't mm-hmm. actually stop the next person from, from, from being, being abused. abused. Yeah. yeah. It, it just shuts the mouth of the people in the back. Yeah. Sorry. Go so, ahead, yeah. So with bankruptcy, the, the with bankruptcy and white collar crime, this is, could be uh, what is called bankruptcy fraud. So what is happening with the Boy Scouts from what I gathered from the documentary is their insurers are refusing to pay the, the, what they're the punishment for what was handed down, which I, to me, makes no sense. How can you be? How can you refuse to pay the insurance when they bought the insurance? They had been buying the insurance for years. Um, one of our talking heads explained how it was honestly the scouts. It was in their dues that they paid for the insurance, and now the insurance companies are basically fighting it so that they don't have to pay. The Boy Scouts of America uh, can claim bankruptcy so that they, um, it, it kind of ties the money up into litigation. We see these in white car crimes where like uh, a company will, um, a company that, that is like a, a, with a a high value name will then purchase like a lower name company, like a, a lower value name company. They will shuffle all of their debts and all of their insurances to that company. And then file bankruptcy to that company so that they the thin the larger named named company doesn't have to deal with the debt or anything like that or the repayment and stuff like this um i Mari, you're really yes. teaching you're teaching the listeners how to get away with with, with fraud here <laughs> that is not my intent i've watched a lot of documentaries i think this is um if I'm if I'm remember correctly, I think this was on the class action park documentary. Yes. I think okay. this was yes. on 
uh, maybe like one of the Enrons or something like that. But gotcha. it's like it, it happens a lot. It, it happens a lot where big businesses can then use smaller businesses to collect their debt. I think it's a, a hospital has done it too. Like a hospital has done it too. But they can use a smaller business to kind of collect their debt, take all of the punitive damages and then declare bankruptcy and basically not have to really pay it back and that the larger brand is not affected. So um, it kind of feels something to this extent. Uh, it it but, just feels odd that they're going to bankruptcy liquidate themselves through to financial health. Uh, yes. I, I didn't <laughs> trust Jim Turley from the moment I laid eyes on him, and we do get contemporaneous uh, apology you know, videos from him as well from mm -hmm. 2012, I think it was. I mean, certainly one of the survivors says that the insurance companies are going to litigate the living fuck out of it. Exactly. And let's not get started on and insurance companies that uh, have 431 billion with a B dollars of scouts and scouts parents uh, money. Yeah. So the bankruptcy is, is touched on the money is touched on. I, I, for one, am quite grateful. The documentary makers didn't, you know, do a line by line spreadsheet. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah I've got it. I would like to talk about our young man. Mari, do you have his name? He was sent a letter. He was a very passionate scout yes. and he was sent a letter saying, oh, by the way, you can't be a scout anymore because yes. you're openly homosexual, whatever openly homosexual means. They mean standing in his truth, I suppose. Uh, uh, gay, me uh, gay members were denied membership until 2013 uh, and yep. adults, adults in leadership positions were denied to gay men until 2015. Uh, how did this young man strike you? Yes, James Dale, Scoutmaster James Dale, um, he basically took his case all the way up to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court because they told him he could not um, be a, a Scoutmaster. He, he had been a, um, a Scout for like 12 years. I think he said from the age of 8 to 20. Um, but then uh, he was like, oh, he took his his uh, case to court and the Supreme Court did not rule in his favor at the time. And the the uh, not the funny thing about it, but I guess like the one thing that I knew about the Boy Scouts uh, was I hate to bring it up, but it brings, I guess, some levity to the podcast at a very crucial moment. Uh, but was the pot was the South Park episode, you know, like um, that was as much as I knew about the Boy Scouts. But South Park had this very like satirical episode where big gay Al was the scoutmaster and you know the boys loved uh being in his his troop but the parents made such a big stink about him being gay that it forced him to not you know to, to leave the scouts he the in the, the episode that he took it to the supreme court meanwhile the guy they came in to replace him was a pedophile like an like an open like pedophile and it was that you know they they can do a job when it comes to uh, satire but this is what it reminded me of and I was just like, wow. Like, um, I, I guess the only good thing about this is that it draws the line between homosexuality and pedophilia. That is like the only really great thing about that. But it's like, why are you so focused on making sure that homosexual people or gay people are not in the scouts? But pedophiles sure why not i was going to say Who don't they cares? stand on the wrong side of that line Mari? You know no, I mean? they, they stand on the wrong side but i'm glad the line was drawn yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know it's funny is when that that scene happened in the I, I was taking notes i was watching when that scene happened in the documentary i want to tell you exactly what i wrote in my notes in all caps i wrote 
now y'all excluding gays? What on earth? Because <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, I remember thinking at the time, like again, the line, Mari, where I'm, I, I'm like, oh, so y'all have y'all have some sort of quote air quotes, hard air quotes, listeners, hard air quotes, listeners. You have some court kind of morals. You have some kind of morals. But this is what you save them for, because mm-hmm. this man is everything that y'all want the Boy Scouts to be yep. embodied in one human. And you're saying that due to his sexuality, he can't be in there with y'all like we can't have him be a part of this this is an organization for manly men doing manly men things which (sighs) insert all of the problematic views of that itself for you to then this is what you take your stand on is absolutely (laughs) ridiculous it's ludicrous yeah yeah they really put their foot down for homosexuality like legit they're like we put our foot down on that but known pedophiles they let hop from troop to troop like really yes. think about that people like that is the that is the just unbelievable thing about this sarah what what do you think well i was thinking about the ineligible volunteer files and when we first heard about them or the red flag files which the public sort of mm-hmm. thought oh are they rooting out commies now mm-hmm. um that the crime there was not reporting it to the police. They wanted to preserve the reputation of these men and their families, mm-hmm. and they just wanted to exclude them from scouting. But no, we find out, like priests, they could very easily just pop up in another in another troop. And again, visually, they give us a map of the United States and they just follow one scout leader. They don't name them. But mm-hmm. there's a red flag hopping from state to state, sometimes close, sometimes far away, where this man went to troop after troop, uh, gained the trust uh, of these boys and abused them. And it's all documented in the files and it wasn't stopped. I became completely enraged about this mm-hmm. complicity. Yes, the pedophiles are the ones that did the actions, but the clear complicity, the strange idea of, oh, well, we'll just make sure that they don't have access to boys, but we mustn't say who they are. We mustn't tell uh, the authorities. And to this day, despite the requests of the survivors, and this is one of the reasons it took so long for them to accept the settlement, one of the requests of the survivors is release all the files and they will not do it. And I was just going to say, like, I it just doesn't make sense to me because, like, if we're juxtaposing this with the Catholic Church, like priests are supposed to be doing a a, like a different job, like, you know, worship. Scout leaders are literally just like (laughs) with children. That is their job. So it does not make sense for them to be able to move around because their job is just to be around kids. If you then identify them as a pedophile, they should not be able to keep that job like it and i'm and i'm not excusing like of course i'm not excusing like catholic uh child child sex abuse i'm just saying they at least have a different job than being with kids you know what i'm saying like it just doesn't make sense to me i think this is an important point mari i mean this idea that somebody could say but why would a scout leader become a pedophile and it's actually the other way around Mm -hmm. pedophiles become scout leaders unfortunately become step parents. They seek out access to children and very importantly, solo access to children. Uh, and we we see how 
I mean, I'd like to return to the victims as we start to wrap up. One of them talks about camp being his happy place because he was away from his abuser. And then the year he goes to camp and his abuser is one of the people who who's there. Not only that, but disappears after two weeks, obviously caught oh, doing something. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and the ship sails on. No one talks to that child. No one comes to that child and says, this terrible thing happens to you. You're safe now. So I think there's two things at work here. And one is uh, something that's returned to all the former scouts can recite the scout code, many, many words. The one that keeps tolling like a bell is obedience. And uh, when you have obedient children, these children will do what they are told. Uh, and if they're told to do great things by a great person, great. Uh, but this was not the case. The other word I keep thinking of, of course, is secrecy. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone I'll kill you. Oh, we have found out that people in our, not employ, but our volunteers are abusing children. Secrecy, secrecy, secrecy. And witnessing these men, the survivors, and Chris, not yet a man, 18-year-old boy who looks literally 15, and the only time we see him smile, this great smile just illuminates his face for a flash of a second because he says fuck and then he says oh sorry swore. <laughs> you think there's that child that's gone now so ron as we wrap up when we think moving from you know how the documentary is made and really just to the content which as you say is the content is the documentary and these courageous men telling their stories who who would you like to to touch on before we leave uh, I just I, and I think we talked about him a little bit, but Stuart Lord, uh, it was the uh, the black man who um, we first are introduced to when he's working out. You know, it was it was hard to watch him, especially, you know, as a black man, uh, because and he's being abused one by other black men also, which uh, mm-hmm. which bothered me. Uh, and it it, mm-hmm. it, it it wouldn't have meant race didn't really matter and who was abusing him, but there was just something uniquely troubling about being in a situation where you are both marginalized people and one of you chooses to victimize the other. It just, yes. it feels like, why would you make this harder for yourself and for this person? Um, uh, why would you do that? And to, to mm-hmm. see that he was affected by it and that he's still grappling with this at, you know, in his early fifties, it, it just, it, it really did something to me. And, it, you know, if we talk about the historical aspect that is kind of gone, when we see the first young man, Chris, when we see him, uh, the historical aspect of gone, which makes it very uh, contemporary when we see him, but watching Chris and knowing, especially when he said something that he was, he was passed around and you know, how that affected his self-esteem for me, I think the only thing that would have would have changed this documentary for me is I would have loved to have known kind of what he's doing now, how he got out of this. Why? Mm. Like, what is he? How he and, and, you know, you never get out of it. Like, let's be honest. If you talk to victims, there's always going to be when and it's grief. It's a form of grief and it's something that he'll be dealing with the rest of his life. But how mm-hmm. do you wake up every morning? How do you get the how do you get the, the uh, motivation to go to the gym, to talk to people, to even do this? Like, how do you get the motivation to do all things? I think that was the one thing for me that was missing from his story, but it was incredibly affecting to see him to talk about it because I mean, he was the, like, again, everything he's talking about and the type of a scout that he described himself as was exactly what the boy scouts wanted, but those were also the kids that were being abused. So I, uh, it was, it was hard to watch that, but my heart really went out to to him and again, that was Stuart Lord. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, and Stephen Crew, we hear a lot from another softly spoken man. He's the attorney that uh, did a lot of work to receive the claims by former uh, Boy Scouts and survivors. Uh, he himself expected in total there would be 7,500 claimants and there were 82,000. He speaks to us very clearly, very softly, very thoughtfully, and there's a moment where he is completely unmanned, as it were, and it's when he wants to say it's the future that was stolen from these men who they would have been if this had not happened. And he can't speak and the director just sits with him. I mean, obviously we don't see her, but we just sit with this man struggling with his own grief and you think it's, yes, the survivors, but also the people around them, the parents, and then this man who has read God knows what in these files and seems very even-keeled and he is brought to an absolute stop. And for him, it's the thought of, of the possibility of these lives. The other person who's very affecting, and, and he ends the documentary for us in a very beautiful location, John Humphrey. He's the leader of the TCC Torts Claim Committee, which was coordinating all of these uh, survivors. He says he cries every time he hears testimony from one of the men. He says he's sat with 75-year-old men who are crying about something that happened to them when they were 12. And I like him because we're introduced to him as a duck hunter. He gets himself, I don't like hunting. Uh, Sorry, Uncle Bob. Um, (laughs) My actual uncle was a duck hunter. Um, He gets his dog, he gets in his thing, he drives, he goes to the hide and then he just sits there. And so I have this thought of a duck hunter who never fires a gun. Uh, which is how John Humphrey seems to me. Mari? Yeah, I thought one of the, like, very, I don't know if it was kind of like out of nowhere uh, style of of, uh, survivor reveal, if that's what you want to call it, but uh, John Stewart, we're introduced to him. He is the managing director for Scouting Works. Um, He has horses. He tells us how he he was, like, with uh, the Scouts from, like, 2010, He's currently with them, something to that effect. Um, but he is so enamored with scouting. He's he he shows us his horses. He shows us his saddles that has the scout colors that it has the Florida Lee. Um, and when we're first introduced to him, I'm like, okay, I'm very interested to see where he's trying to go. It sounded like he's like trying to steer the ship, the currently sinking ship, and steer it back towards. Um, you know, a, a good port, if you will. He's trying to he's trying to make the Boy Scouts better, and he doesn't come off as like bad as some of the other. Like he talked about some of the other executives on here, um, but I still was kind of unsure, like um, what he was, what was his purpose here in the in the documentary. Um, but then it's revealed. We later come back after you know so so much uh, much more of uh, revealing um, 
about the 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 most modern portion of the most modern like um, case that they're going through, and we find out that he too um, was abused. Um, he talked about how his older brother was in the scouts, and his older brother had was was t- talking to him about how like a scout master had tried it with him, but his older brother w- was like you know um, able to be like, hey, get out, get out of here, uh, don't try that funny stuff with me type in his it his nothing happened to his brother he did scouts and unfortunately the same situation happened to him and he said i just wasn't big enough to to fight him off and so um he was abused and it it really came out of nowhere for me and it was very um impactful because after he talks about his story he he then goes to say like yeah i really hated that experience i think he he talked about how it the, the experience changed for him but then, like, I think at, he don't, we don't know how the abuse stops, but it seems like the abuse seemed to stop and he was still able to continue scouting. So he actually says scouting like saved him. Uh, so I thought that was a really good perspective to have in there, like an alternate alternative uh, perspective of somebody who went through the same uh, the same abuse. He didn't downplay his abuse. He didn't like it didn't feel like he was making excuses for the BSA. He just said, for me personally, scouting actually helped me get over it. And he was able to, you know, kind of throw himself into it and find a safer spot. And it it actually helped him. And I thought that was kind of important to share. You know, it's it's important to share that that uh, people deal with abuse in in different ways and that was just his way and i and i and i found it i thought it was really well placed uh, here in, in the documentary so we rate documentaries here on this <laughs> podcast we make recommendations ones where the content is disturbing i think all of us have, have been both watching it and silently on this podcast angry tearful <laughs> uh hopeless hopeful I think that's what the documentary certainly did for me. I don't want to speak for both of you, but let's rate it. Ronald, (laughs) (laughs) having said that, how many magnifying glasses are you going to rate Leave No Trace out of a possible five, and would you recommend it for people to watch? Uh, I... It's funny because I, I, in my mind, I could separate the construction from the content, and I, Mm -hmm. I try to tell people this all the time. Uh, I thought the construction was just okay. Uh, and, I, and I think that's what gets me because I'm like, like you can get an affecting, especially I'm an audio producer. You can get affecting uh, stories from, from folks and they can be really moving and all that. And I think I, because I am a critic, I'm fairly, very careful to separate that from what I'm watching in terms of the story. And I found that there uh-huh. were parts of this that they, they, that dragged along a bit uh, and Ooh, okay. not that to do with the uh, witnessing, but I mean, specifically like when we're talking about bank statements and all that, sometimes I was getting lost. Uh, in some <laughs> portions. So okay, uh, yep. for me of five, nine, uh, five uh, magnifying glasses, I probably give the content of four and the construction of three. So probably rest somewhere around 3.5 magnifying glasses out of five for me. Oh, okay. thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mari, what about you? Um, I think I will give it a four. I didn't have um, uh, much criticisms when it came to the layout. I, I actually did like it. It was a lot of jumping around, but I felt like I knew what was what was going on. I do agree with Ron. There was like it was a portion like in the back, like maybe that back hour, because this was a, almost a two hour documentary. It was probably that first half hour of that back hour where 
we're going into like a lot of the case logistics stuff, like where they're they're testifying at Congress and stuff like that. And they're going back in the different executives. It was kind of confusing because we're getting shots of Congress and them testifying at Congress. And then the next shot is like, oh, this executive has also been abusing boys. And I, I really I actually remember going back to make sure is this the same person? It wasn't. Um, but I think it was a spot where they were outlining the, the 1990 uh children's protections like how they they had uh, initiated that protection program that did not help at all clearly um but i I can agree with with ron on that definitely so i think it was a four the content was jarring it was disturbing it was very rewatchable even again with the disturbing content i just think that um it gets one of the high the highest marks for me when it comes to the victims and spotlighting the victims i mean literally the highest i would have probably given it a five it uh just from the victim testimony alone but ron is right we got to separate the content from the um how it's put together and but i i really thought that it was so powerful that we got to hear from so many victims their stories straight up and not only that but that they ran the gamut of time from the oldest victim or sorry the oldest survivor to the youngest survivor it was just I mean, it was just so impactful. Like that, that is the main takeaway for me um, from the documentary. It's these stories need to be told like this needs to, if the Boy Scouts of America are, need to be exposed, this is how you do it. And this is the only way you're going to get effective change because that's how they were able to last so long. They kept everything in the shadow and in the dark. But once you bring that to the light, they're being held accountable. You know, maybe they can resurrect this, this um, institution. Maybe not. I think at this point, we don't care. We just want the child abuse to stop. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, it's a four for me. Uh, Sarah, how oh, about you? Yeah, thanks, Mari. The uh, membership is certainly falling and mm-hmm. uh, you know, long may it fall. <laughs> I'm a four. I, I mean, very similar lines to both of you. The content is, is important. It's done I think really beautifully. The interviews with the survivors are done really well. Definitely watch it unless you don't want to. I know yeah. that's a strange thing to yes. say. No, that's a great recommendation. That's what <laughs> I would say. <laughs> yes. Uh, I certainly, you know, I cried. I shook. I yes. got furious. Uh, I took it personally. Um, <laughs> it's not graphic. But when I think about it, I think about this quiet telling, this almost tolling of information. I think the use of the archival material is really good. Uh, that gave me a lot because it's like this is the outer shell, this is the presentation, and, of course, you turn over that rock and there is this evil underneath, not only the perpetrators but those that stood by and did nothing. Well, actually didn't do nothing, buried it. To more cheerful things. Ronald, do you have a recommendation for this? And is it a comedy? Sarah, you got to stop. <laughs> okay. Um, I would like to recommend a show that probably people have already heard about, um, but uh, I, I've, I just finished the first season 
and I really enjoyed it. I was a huge fan of a show on Comedy Central called Nathan for You with mm. uh, Nathan Fielder. I've watched that show. That show for a while was my like depression show where if I was feeling upset, I'd just mm. keep watching Nathan for You over and over again and, and learn new things. So I've seen every episode like four to five times. Really enjoy it. Like quoted all the time. And then Nathan Fielder, you know, the show went off the air and he started a new show on HBO Max called The Rehearsal, which for people who are very familiar with Nathan for You, this is very much the direction I mean, the direction that the show was headed in. And it's basically Nathan Fielder going around and doing these elaborate rehearsals with people who are preparing for something big to happen in their life. He's hiring actors. He's constructing constructing elaborate replicas of the environments that they'll be in. He's involving himself. You know, he's really getting people ready for whatever it is that they need to undertake in their lives. But as the show continues, especially in the first season, it kind of changes a bit, it becomes remarkably poignant, especially in the fifth and sixth episodes. There's only six episodes all available on HBO Max. Uh, so, yeah, I would recommend that to anyone. It's not it's start. It's pretty light adjacent. I would say the poignant parts are pretty existential, but there's nothing graphic or crazy uh, happening. There's a few things that are touching on. Why do we do this? Should we be doing this type of thing? But it's definitely something that will make you think, but not necessarily. Uh, it's not necessarily a bunch of broccoli. It's not super heavy. Uh, you can go walk away and forget about it and enjoy the second season when it comes out because it was renewed for a second season. And again, that's the rehearsal on HBO Max. Amari, um, do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Um, one of our listeners, uh, Shondell, she had emailed us with uh, two recommendations. Here is another one of the recommendations that she had um, sent to us, and it's The Keepers. I did watch The Keepers. It It is a uh, docuseries that's on Netflix. It's a seven-part docuseries um, that explores an unsolved uh, murder of uh, a nun named Catherine Sesnick in 1969. I'm going to admit I did not get fully through this docuseries because it was seven episodes. It came out in like 2017 when like I actually had things to do <laughs> like you know, before, you know, a global plague stopped everything. So I think I'm going to go back and, and finish it up because I, I do think I was uh, I was compelled by the first few episodes. It was just um, I didn't get to finish and, and Shondell gave it a glowing review. So I'm going to pass that on. Also, uh, Ron did mention a very, very good documentary that I really appreciated, Athlete A on Netflix, um, the story of the uh, women's, the U.S. women's uh, gymnastics trial of uh, uh, Dr. Larry Nasser and his abuse trial. I mean, that documentary, I remember watching it during the pandemic, of course, and just being like, wow, like, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, and and just like with this one with the boy scouts and, and, and athlete eight is like you you hear like the you hear like the little undernotes in the news like you, it's one of those things the headlines like you know but you really don't know until you watch this watch a documentary that dives deep into what was actually going on and your mind is just blown at like how can how could this happen but uh, that's it for my recommendations uh how about you sarah uh, well, this one comes from Sarah D. Bunting and Eve Beatty at uh, Best Evidence. They recommend a podcast called The Sunshine Place, uh, telling the story of Synanon, which was a cutting-edge social experiment which turned into one of America's most dangerous and violent cults. Sorry, I'm just stopping oh. down now because I heard myself saying one of its <laughs> most dangerous. Correct. And violent <laughs> cults. <laughs> 
Uh, I listened to the first episode and I found it excellent and fascinating. So on the strength of uh, those two uh, recommenders and one episode from me, I recommend that. At Crime Scene, we're eager to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. You can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene RHAP, that's Scene, S-E-E-N, or email us at Crime Scene RHAP at gmail.com. So, Ron, what do you have going on and where can the people find you? All right. So. yeah uh, i i we mentioned it at the top i host the podcast called leaving the theater which is a movie review podcast i do while i'm walking out of the theater after seeing a movie um Mm -hmm. and luckily after when the pandemic started i started this podcast in 2019 and when the pandemic started i was able to start reviewing things on my couch as well so i do (laughs) television uh, uh television movie and streaming properties so that's again leaving the theater um if you want to find out what I'm up to. You know, I got other shows in development through my studios, Owitz Big Ron Studios. Uh, So if you want to find out more that I'm working on, you can follow me on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Owitz Big Ron. That's at O-H-I-T-S-B-I-G-R-O-N. I'm still figuring out TikTok, but I'm getting um, better (laughs) at it. I'm just trying to post one video a week right now. And I think one of the things in my bio says that I'm way too old to be on (laughs) here. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm figuring it out. The good thing about TikTok is so it, it's it's democratized. So they really want everyone to join in and it's not meant to be something that's alienating uh, to the folks that are on it. So follow me on all my socials again. That's at Oh, it's Big Rod. And uh, yeah, uh, come on over and listen to Leave It to Theater. A lot of people enjoy it and uh, look forward to having some new listeners. Fantastic. Yes. We'll link that in the show notes. Mari, what have you got going on? So of course, every week, me and you, Sarah, we're here crime scene every tuesday true crime tuesdays uh just uh for that i just want to say uh follow our ig we got our new ig um you can follow us on instagram at crime scene podcast on instagram we'll drop like extra pictures of the docu documentaries or docuseries um leave your your comments in there like tell us what you thought about uh, about the series leave it there on the instagram go follow us um you can also follow me on twitter at mari talks too much that's two like the number two there you'll find all the links to all my podcasts i'm talking big brother 24 right now atlanta is coming up here um on post show recaps so if you want to know what i'm doing just go and follow me on twitter again that's at mari talks too much that's two like the number to uh how about you sarah where can the people find you well they can follow me at sarah carradine if they feel like it i certainly link everything there that i'm doing um you and i mari were on a podcast last week we helped to recap and talk all about the fantastic reality television show claim to fame and it was great Mm -hmm. to bring our detecting uh, Mm -hmm. brains to that uh, very important uh, document claim to fame that was last week if you're following the show or you can just enjoy the podcast on RHAP with hosts Rob Sestanino and Jenny Autumn. Mari what do we have Mm -hmm. next week? Next time on Crime Scene, we'll be reviewing House of Hammer with guest Jason Reed. You can watch it on Discovery Plus and send us your comments and questions. Thanks to Ronald Young Jr. for joining us, to Will from America for the theme music, Tricky Rice for the graphics, and Scott St. Pierre behind the scenes. Until next time, 
Case, Case closed. closed.